Hello and everybody, welcome again to the Jack Mitchell Podcast. I am Jack Mitchell, your host. Glad to have you with me once again for another episode. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed. Last week we talked to Dr. Tyler White. If you didn't get a chance to hear that, we talked to the Lincolnite University of Nebraska Lincoln professor, expert in national security about a lot of the headlines in the world across uh, geopolitical lines last week and kind of tried to put it in layman's terms with a lot of things that are happening and kind of beyond a lot of the, maybe a lot of the spin that you're sometime hearing. So uh, take a listen to that if you, if you missed it. But this week it is time to get back to something that we started a couple of weeks ago and a little bit of a project that that I've been doing about nostalgia and getting back to some memories that I've got growing up in Lincoln and to some degree being in Omaha frequently. If you missed the first episode of this, go back uh, a couple of episodes ago. You might want to start with episode one. You don't have to, but you might want to, where I started my top 10 countdown of the places that I most directly associate with this just feeling of childhood wonder and nostalgia. And, um, you know, I, I know with a lot of these, if I somehow went back in time and, and went and saw them again, or, or to the degree that degree that any of them are really still here in the same form that they are before, which I don't think any of them that I've really mentioned are, um, well, maybe one of them will be today, but nonetheless, like, I realize, I get how nostalgia works. As time passes, we sort of over-glorify the past, and there's a mystique there about it not being here now that creates something that was even bigger and more grand and more amazing and, and better than we even remember. And I'm fully self-aware about all of those things. Um, and so maybe that's why it's good that I'm not actually physically revisiting any of these things, I'm not going back in time to any of these places because the memories that I've got of them um, are better than duplicating any of the experience themselves. But I just want to clarify, like, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. And I think when I recall stories, I think they're mostly true. But I think, <clears throat> I think they've, been, they've sort of been relived over and over in my head so many times, and I've glorified these, these places um, to, to a place where... They bring me, they bring me real. They bring me a good feeling about my past. They bring me good memories about the past. They bring me memories of people who aren't around anymore, um, and just times that aren't around anymore either. And so I, I really like going down these rabbit holes. And and to prepare for this, I've done. Um, I ended up on a lot of Reddit threads. Really, there are there must be a lot of people on Reddit who like to sort of try and recall, try and find the information about the nostalgia they've got about growing up in Lincoln, especially, and I'm sure every town has this as well. I know there are Facebook pages out there that have the these pictures out there as well. I like them, but usually they go so far back into the past, like predating my era in uh, in, in Nebraska. We moved here, I, I mentioned in the previous episode, in 1986. Excuse me. Excuse me, just had to clear my throat there. Uh, we moved here in 1986, and some of those go so far back into the 60s and, and 50s um, that it's a little beyond my era. But I, I do love seeing those old pictures. And, and I, if I could put together some shots, some old pictures that people have of all the places that I mentioned on the last episode and this one together, I would actually love to do that uh, at some point, and maybe I will. But anyway, what, what I've been doing is counting down 
10 of the places, and some of these I'm kind of cheating, I'm combining them together, but 10 of the places that I most have just unbridled positive nostalgia related to my childhood for. And these are areas that are local. Uh, There was one in Omaha. Uh, Last time around, there's going to be one in Omaha. This time, the rest of them are in Lincoln. And so hopefully some of you have memories about these two. If you do, uh, if you listen to this, hit me up on on Twitter at Jack uh, at Jack Mitchell LNK. Uh, you can shoot me an email at Jack M at KLIN dot com. Um, curious if you have any additional memories, any pictures, any of the other information that I didn't get across or got. A, I might have got a, got across inaccurately on some of these because sometimes I think I think my memory may fa- fail me a bit with these things. But anyway, I want to get back into the conversation of what these places were for me and maybe places for you too. And I want to go back. I started my job in the radio in 2006. And that, as as I did some research for this episode, I realized that downtown Lincoln really changed in in a few ways, but one way specifically, right around 2006. Actually, it's kind of a, a, a few-year era from like 2003, 2004 to 2006. And one of the biggest parts of that change was the way that we saw movies in Lincoln. Now, uh, for those of you who either weren't around then uh, or were not from Lincoln, um, Lincoln now has a few movie theater options. They've got the big major plex in downtown Lincoln called The Grand, and that's it for actual studio, like big studio movie theaters. They also have the Ross that's associated with the University of Nebraska. And then you can also go to uh, go to South Point on the, I call it the southwest area of town, uh, the, the big mall over there. You can go to Edgewood, uh, which is over there on South 56th Street, kind of more southeast, south central Lincoln. Uh, or you can go over to East Park, which is right in kind of east central Lincoln there. And we'll get to more to East Park on in a second. So that's that's it right now. So there are those what one two three four options, and and somehow by the way, somehow Northeast Lincoln and really East Park is north of O by about I don't know fifty yards, and then there's nothing any further than uh, north of that for anybody who lives in North and Lincoln, which is still kind of ridiculous. But nonetheless, um, in in my childhood in Lincoln up until that about early 2000s period, the, the the options were different. And the biggest way that the options were different was downtown Lincoln. Because instead of there being one hub, one multiplex in downtown Lincoln, there was a mess of theaters in downtown Lincoln. And my memory didn't totally serve me on this, and so those of you probably who are a little bit older than me, um, you'll probably remember ones that I don't remember, and you may correct me if I don't completely nail down all of the correct names and addresses on this, although I think I've got it right. I think I've got it right here based on the research that I did that I just got back to here. So um, here's here's what I remember. Here's what I remember. So if you've been in downtown Lincoln, you know there is the the spire. It's the artwork um, that is over there. I think it's uh, like called the Lincoln Community Foundation. It's little, it's of the foundation square, 
Um, there's artwork there. I think you know what I'm talking about there. So that was one of them. Okay, and that one, I believe, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, that one would have been the, all right, I don't want to get this wrong. I think that one would have been the Douglas Three. I think that one would have been the Douglas Three. So that opened in 1973. There was an old YMCA over there, and that one opened at that point, and it closed, again, on 2004. So that was one of them that was over there. This was an entire intersection. So right across from there now is currently, you'll recall, this is still there. That's the Rococo Theater that's there. And they'll have concerts there. You maybe have seen concerts. You maybe have seen other events that are there as well. That still exists there. Excuse me. And that's the old Stewart Theater. That was a single theater. I went, all these I can remember some super random movies that I saw at those places. I saw the movie, and it might have been the last movie I ever saw there. I saw the movie The Rocketeer there. Does anybody remember The Rocketeer? I saw The Rocketeer at the Stewart Theater. And that was the only theater that I had ever been in. And I think I had tickets up there. It was the only theater I'd ever been in that had a balcony. I had never in my life, I don't think, been to a theater until I had gone to that one that had a balcony. Um, and I, I think I sat in, I think the Rocketeer might've been the last, I don't know if that was the last movie I saw there or not. Um, but that was there. And so that's the Rococo, uh, that eventually got, got changed up, redone to what the Rococo is now that kept it looking very, you know, very similar to what it looked like at that point. So that one is at least preserved. A lot of these other ones are not, are not preserved. So you've got, you've got that, uh, the Douglas three. So that was right across from the Rococo. Then you had the Plaza Four. The Plaza Four was opened in 1973. This was the first fourplex they had. Um, And so they built that one. Cooper Theaters bought this one instead of renewing their lease at the time on Stewart Theaters. They gave that up at the time and ended up doing that. Uh, The offices were actually built above the theater in the office section uh, uh, when it was built. It was originally called the Plaza Theaters. Um, and then they later operated, uh, Douglas Theaters later operated that. That one closed also November of 2004, okay? And so that would have been on 201 North 12th Street is where that one. And my, my I have one main memory. I went to several movies there. I have one main memory of that one. I went to the movie Dances with Wolves there. So what was that, 1990, 1991? That, that movie came out. So if I've got that, maybe 1989. If I've got that number right, I would have been 12, 13, 14 when I went to it. And I went with my folks. We went to the movie Dances with Wolves when it was getting all the critical acclaim with Kevin Costner there. And we sit down. It was a pretty crowded movie. It was very popular. Everybody wanted to see it at that time. And we we sit down, and this uh, somebody who's really tall sits down right in front of me in this movie. And my dad, uh, my late father, hits me in the arm. And he says, he says, Jack. Well, he called me John because that's my real name. He said, hey, you know who that is? That's Bo Reed. Who's Bo Reed? Well, you might not know now. It was, a, it was a Husker basketball player at the time, a current basketball player at the time. And I was already, guys, in my days of of extreme, just early days, probably three years into it at that point, four or five years into it, of Husker basketball fandom. And so I was pretty excited. Um and so uh, Bo goes out to, because we, we had been sitting there for a while. The movie hadn't started yet. Goes out, goes to the concession stand, 
And I grab a, like a, you know, I asked my mom for a, a piece of paper and she had a notepad in her purse at the time. And so I brought a, an actual like notepad and a pen out to Bo Reed while he's waiting to buy popcorn with his then girlfriend, uh, I think. <laughs> More on that in a second. And I ask him for his autograph sitting there in the concession line at the Plaza Four Theaters waiting to see <laughs> dances with wolves. Now, Bo Reed, I, I have to look it up again. I can't, I want to say he was six. Five, six, six, maybe. Maybe he's only six four. I'll have to I'll have to go check the old rosters and see how tall it was. But anyway, it was not he was nice enough. He signed my autograph. Uh it was cool. We got back in there and um and sat down and started watching the movie. And I'm I'm giddy, Bo Reed sitting in front of me. Um we're we're gonna go see this movie. And if you remember, if you've ever seen Dances with Wolves, they talk a lot in a non English Native American tongue during that movie and so there is a necessity for a lot of subtitles during the course of that movie and my level of excitement for Bo Reed sitting in front of me started to dissipate when I realized uh, I got a guy who is close to a foot taller than me in front of me and his head is such that I can't read the subtitles in the movie at all whatsoever and so i'm jerking my head around on every side trying to see around bo reed trying to read the subtitles of the entire movie and i still don't know that i caught a lot of key points of dances with wolves and to this day i honestly i don't think i ever like re-rented dances with wolves i don't think i saw i don't think i've seen dances with wolves it's one of those movies that i saw in the theater and I don't think I just have ever had any reason to watch again. I don't think I ever saw it again. And so I'm still not sure I totally grasped the detail of the movie Dances with Wolves thanks to Bo Reed. And years later, years later, so this is going back, I don't know, four years ago maybe, um, I went to an event. Uh, Dirk Chatlin, who wrote for the Omaha World Herald at the time, did this big retrospective on Danny Nee, the Nebraska basketball coach's career and it was it was these great pieces go back and read it if you were a old uh, 80s 90s basketball fan of Nebraska basketball and and read all the stories because it was a crazy but lots of times pretty good era of Nebraska basketball and he did uh to kind of celebrate it he did a live show where he brought up a bunch of the players who were on those teams including Bo Reed and he had Bruce Chubbuck there uh he had some others there as well and just kind of did a live show and asked him questions and so afterwards, I introduced myself to Bo Reed um, for a variety of reasons. I just wanted to, to meet him and tell him that I enjoyed the show. But then I said, I was like, you're not going to believe this, but um, but I, I remember going to this movie at the Plaza Four, and you were sitting in front of me, and I asked you for your autograph, and I think you were probably on some kind of a date, and I just wanted to say, and I was like, I hope I didn't ruin your date <laughs> by bugging you when you were out at Dances with Wolves in the movie. And Bo says back to me, and he was like, you know what? Yeah, that was um, uh, that was probably uh, the woman who went on to be my wife, uh, who I uh, now have divorced. <laughs> so I was like, oh, jeez. Um, so anyway, I didn't I didn't ruin anything at least at at that point with that whole thing. So anyway, back to the theater. So that was that was the other one. So we had uh, we had the Douglas Three, we had the Stewart. Okay, and then we had the Plaza Four. I don't remember anything specific to the Douglas Three. I'm sure I went to movies at it. That's the one where the spire was. Um, but I don't have anything specific. And then you had another one. So 
people, you, you, you younger people in Lincoln, like, so we had, Stewart had one theater, Douglas Three had, had three theaters, so that was four. Uh, the Plaza Four had four theaters, so that was eight. And then you had the Cinema Twin that had another two theaters on top of that. So Cinema Twin was also right in that same area. So you're like, this is like an intersection here where you got theater, 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 down the street a little bit more, and a fourth theater. Uh, Cinema Twin was 201 North 13th Street in Lincoln. So if you go back to archives of the Journal Star, it said to prepare for the impending demolition of the Varsity Theater, which began in April 73, the manager was opening the cinemas one and two a block away from the Varsity on September 17, 1971. So this is, by the way, right in the middle of the heyday of Johnny Rogers, Nebraska football, 1971, when my parents are in college. I should I should ask my mom about this. She probably knows more about this. And the uh, the manager at that time said he could have put 300 seats in auditorium, but in the interest of patron comfort, he put only 270. He said that the chair spacing back-to-back was 38 inches. Another feature for patron comfort was five air conditioners with separate controls to control the airflow. So the opening films there were Summer of 42, and Le Mans. A week later, they reported that Summer of 42 had been sold out since its, op- since its open, and it ended up playing there until December 24th, 1971. They ran that movie there from September 17th to Christmas Eve in 1971. So they then sold that one and the State Theater, which we'll get to at point to Westland Theaters, Colorado. Then it was called the Cinema Twin later after that. It was the corporate headquarters of Douglas Theaters. That was closed also November 18th, 2004. At that point, a day before the Lincoln Grand opened up, the current Lincoln Grand opened up at that point. Cinema Twin. And here's the crazy thing I remember about the Cinema Twin. I need to look up the dates. But I know the last movie that I saw at the Cinema Twin. And it had to be... not lo- If they closed in November 2004... I saw Napoleon Dynamite in that movie, in that movie theater. Um, I got to look at when Napoleon Dynamite. I'm actually going to Google this while we're talking here. Um, I want to say that probably uh, debuted in 2003. You guys think 2003? Let me see. Napoleon Dynamite. Okay, it it debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 2004. Debuted in January 2004. The release date was January 17th, 2004. So that was definitely the last movie I saw in that place. And the last movie that I saw in any of these theaters that all went away right at about the same time, 2004, was Napoleon Dynamite. So anyway, that one, that one is, uh, that was an interesting one too. And then the other, just some of the other ones, and I don't remember these quite as much, um, but there was also the, well, well, I want to get to I want to get to the one that actually started this whole thing for me, the whole idea for me, and that was the Starship. Now, if you're a little bit younger than me, you're still probably in here with me on the Starship. What was the Starship? Well, it was a second run theater. Now, again, to a certain age group, I've got to explain how this worked, and to a lot of you, I don't have to explain this, but. What happened when we were growing up during movies is it had a run of X weeks. You know, I talked to you about the one of it lasted September to December 24th. Had a run of X weeks in the theaters. If it was a huge movie, it would go for a long time. Uh, if it would, you know, go from summer to fall, if it was a huge blockbuster. If it wasn't huge, it would go a couple of weeks. 
couple, three weeks. And then there was the wait until it would come out to be rentable at a video store at on, on VHS originally on DVD later down the road. And that, and you guys, I, I want to say that was usually at least three months or so, maybe more than that in the early days. It took a while. So there was this like, there was this like gulf where you could not see these movies because they would only, once they started not selling out in the theaters, they got rid of them. They got something new in there. And so until it came out for rental, there was just no way of seeing it. Enter in 1992, and I'm sure this happened in other towns too, but enter in 1992, the Starship Theater in Lincoln. And it opened up, and this was a, I, I think it was called a second, second-run movie, right? A second-run movie theater, meaning that it would, after they closed in the main theaters, right, and they moved new, they moved something new into the Cinema Twin or into East Park or to any of these other places, that they would then bring it into the Starship, and it was showing that interim time there between when the movie would close in most theaters and when it would be released for rental. At that point, the catch is, or the benefit is, that it was cheap. When they opened in 1992, if my memory serves me, it was one dollar a ticket in 1992. I believe that was raised at some point in the mid 90s to a dollar fifty, and then I believe it was raised one more time in the late 90s or early 2000s to two dollars. I I don't think it ever got higher than two dollars, but that's what it cost, and so. Being a uh, high school student without any money in the early years that it was open. So it opens in 1992. I got my driver's license in 1993. So the first time I can just decide to go to movies on my own, this thing was still brand spanking new, and it was costing $1.50 to go to a movie. So there were very frequent times where you would go to the Starship and had nine theaters, and <laughs> you would go there, and you wouldn't even plan what movie you were going to go there go-to when you were there, right? I mean, normally you look through the papers, you find the showtimes, so forth. You would go there and you would just decide what movie you were seeing at the time. And there might be a chance. I mean, there was a decent enough chance. I left movies multiple times just and just watched some of them. Or I would arrive late to movies when I was going there. And it was this freedom that you had because it was $1.50 or it was something that you'd seen four times before. But it was still you were still doing it at this point. Movies I remember seeing there is a lot of them. There's a lot of them. I saw School Ties with Brendan Fraser there. I, I remember my friends let me know. They didn't. It was one of those deals where we didn't know what movie we were going to, and I was late. I was coming from somewhere, and I don't know what. I couldn't have texted them. I don't know why. Somehow I found out they were at the Starship Nine, and I had to figure out what theater they were in, and I don't even know how I did it, but I got about 20 minutes late into the movie School Ties, uh, which is a... It's got very, look it up. It's got some serious subject matter in the whole thing. And I walk in about, the you know, a third of the way through this movie and picked it up from there on. Uh, I saw I saw a couple of Highlander movies there with my friends where we were the only ones in the theater and just talking at full normal volume during the entire thing. Um, I saw the movie Natural Born Killers there, which at my age at that time was very disturbing to me. Tons of them. I can't, I mean, I there were there are tons of them and you it it just took it changed the movie going experience so much because the price was so uh nominal that right you, there was no pressure on picking something you liked if you didn't like if you didn't like it 
You didn't have to stay. Um, and it was just a go, or, or you're going to multiple movies uh, over the course of a night there. And, and there's no doubt I spent more time in that theater than any of the other downtown theaters. I probably also spent that much time in East Park at East Park, which we can get to here in a second. But that thing closed in the ho- during the holidays of 2006. I went back and looked at some of the old notes on this thing. Um, it was a business decision decision spurred, according to the Daily Nebraskan, uh, by Hollywood's increased promotion of DVD sales, which has hurt second-run theaters such as the Starship, said the CFO of Douglas Theater at the con- at the time. Now. I didn't know this, though. Lincoln's college students wanted to keep it open. They spearheaded a petition signed by 300 people. Now, not that much, but of course it was huge for the university. It was in walking distance, um, not not far over there. I mean, it was right across from, uh, let's see, what what's it now that's, that it's right across? From? See, it used to be an arcade that it was across from over there at some point. Um, it was, and I'm, I'm terrible at my streets in downtown Lincoln, so I got to look this up real quick and make sure I can uh, tell. Yeah, Starship Nine. So it would have been on 1311Q. 1311Q to give you an idea where it was. Open on April 7 of 1992, and uh, you had college students trying to save it. But I found this old DN article about the whole thing, and they talked to a freshman German major named Avery Thrasher. I wonder where Avery Thrasher is right now. He says he signed the petition and he wanted to keep it open, but he found out that the petition never made it to the city council for some reason. He couldn't explain why it was never delivered. It's a little odd, Thrasher said. I'm half tempted to take it to the city council. Thrasher said he didn't think another parking garage was needed in downtown and that he'd miss watching $2 movies. (laughs) And so I... I, maybe we changed history. We changed history if uh, Avery and the 300 other students who signed that petition actually got that thing to the city council at the time. And they wouldn't have paid Paradise to put up a parking garage or whatever. Uh, now on that, th- so to give you an idea now, it's, uh, was I always forget. Again, I'm not in, this is terrible, but I live in Lincoln, but I'm in downtown and the business has changed enough. They have a new like five, everything is $5 store that's right in that area right now. Uh, the Panda Express, I think, is in that area. That's what I'm talking about. That's the that's the area I'm talking about that that thing was, and it was great. Oh, and they had black lights in there, and they had black carpet, and all had all, all like kind of, uh, I think it was kind of like a space theme with this carpet. And not only could you see all the bright colors, the black light lit it up, but like any there was popcorn that had been dropped all over the place. Like it wasn't it wasn't completely the best idea for a black light situation because it made the carpet look incredibly dirty every time they went in there because every little thing that was on there completely was pointed out. So anyway, those the, the memory of those uh downtown movie theaters and and then they opened the grand, right? You, you know, like I mentioned in two thousand four or so, and that's what we've got now. Um man. And I it's I bet I've been, this is crazy. So 2004, so that's been open 19 years. I've lived in Lincoln the entire time. I'm going to guess I've been to five movies at the Grand in my life. Maybe. Maybe. Is that bad? Maybe five movies. And so I'm, I mean, I always look more to the neighborhood theaters for various reasons. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're closer and parking is better and, and all of those things, but. Anyway, that is the uh, those are the me- oh, and the other the other thing that I wanted to mention. Let's see, I wanted to see if I could find this uh, quote that I had. 
So the other thing is that right after the Starship closed, there was this talk about this entrepreneur, and I lost lost my article on this, but about this entrepreneur that was coming in from Lincoln that was going to rejuvenate. Since the Starship was closed, they were going to rejuvenate what was called the State Theater. Now, the State Theater is what is now the Bourbon Theater, okay, the music venue on O Street. It had just come off being a little... Uh, a little fairly well-known place that I never went to. I wasn't old enough, but I know of a lot of people who did, called Studio 14. Studio 14 uh, was operated and run by Lance Brown, a former Husker football player, wearing wore number 14 uh, on the football team, thus the name Studio 14. He drove this, like, uh, red Dodge Spider around town. You guys remember seeing that? And I think it had a license plate that was custom. I don't know if it says Studio 14 or something like that, but there was a lot of, I think I need somebody who spent more time there and knows more about that to do the podcast about whatever all happened with that, but it closed down, and I'm not sure if anything went in there afterwards, the old state theater, but the idea was, hey, we're going to we're gonna do second-run movies at the, the, the Studio 14, the old state theater, and we're going to put couches, we're going to put love seats, and we're going to do that whole thing. I don't, did that ever happen? I, I need somebody to, to shoot me a message. Like, I remember the talk about it. I th- I think it might have happened for a very short while after that in 06, 07. And maybe they made, I want to say they made it like a comedy club for a while, but I never ended up going there. But there was an idea to, to rejuvenate the idea of a second-run theater, and it didn't. And the bourbon eventually took that over. Uh, I don't know what year the bourbon actually became the bourbon theater. Uh, exactly, but it wasn't, it was a few years, few years down the road after that, but maybe you guys can help me remember that, that period of time, mid two thousands, uh, exactly what happened there. I think they did get something off the ground for a little while that it was sort of like a, a serve food couches show movie type situation, but didn't end up taking. So anyway, that was a lot. That was a, that was a lot on those theaters, but I had to go back and I started reading about all the old stuff and I had kind of forgotten about it all right so that's uh number five number four on this i'll probably be a little bit quicker on this one but number four on this for me is showbiz pizza and i'm not saying chuck e cheese because it was never there was never an era for me i mean i guess for my own kids to some degree it was it was chuck e cheese that was the big deal but showbiz pizza place lincoln nebraska in on 66th street um, it was, there was a Chi Cheese next door to it, I believe just immediately to the South. It's the same building that Chuck E. Cheese was in when they closed their doors, what, a year or two ago, three years ago. Not sure exactly what had happened. Uh, first time I went to a showbiz was actually in Denver, Colorado. I believe when I was visiting my aunt and uncle who lived out there, I'm going to guess circa 1984, 83, maybe. So I'm maybe six years old. And we get in there, and they. We can get to this later, but Showbiz eventually made some changes to their model because it was. I mean, it was a. There was a level of creepiness to it in the early days of the whole thing. If you were at Showbiz Pizza before like 1986 or so, when they it, it was a completely dark theater where that where you ate the pizza. The lights were all down. You couldn't see anything, and they'd bring up the curtain on these animatronic animals, including the gorilla, which just scared the piss out of me as a kid. The first time I went to that place in Denver, I was terrified of that gorilla. And 
I remember telling one of my parents, I saying something like, I'm so glad there's glass in front of these animals, in front of these animatronic animals uh, between us. And then, and, and my parents were kind enough to tell me, oh, there's not any glass. You can go right up to them and look at them if you want to. And I, I about had it. I was done. I was out of there. I wanted out of that room. I wanted nothing to do with that dark room and those terrifying animals. I hadn't seen that level of robotic technology yet in person in my life. And so I freaked out. So it was a bad experience there the very first time. But in subsequent years, so we get closer to when we moved to Lincoln. And, and before we moved to Lincoln, we visited Lincoln because all of my extended family lived in the area. And a couple of times that was the big deal. Like if we would go out with my with my uncle, we would make a stop at Chauvet's Pizza. So this is still pre-1986 when we moved here. Um, and then I, I got to an age more like eight years old where the experience was a lot better, like really good after that. And sure, the sitting in there and, and seeing the animals sing was awesome, but that's not what it was about. That's not it, That's not at all what it was about. It was about... It was about the video games. It was about the arcade, which the arcades were still, and the arcades were still incredibly tempting in the mid '80s to me as a seven, eight-year-old. But you had the arcades, but you had it at a new level where you had the skee ball, you had like the basketball shootout games. I had never done these before anywhere. Um, now they're fairly common. The skee ball, the basketball shootout, the ball pit. I was a little old for that, I think, by that point. They had a thing there, and you can still find this on the internet. Where you would, <laughs> it's insane. You would take like a a toddler, and you would strap them in a seat. It kind of looked a little bit like a a very minimally safe car seat, and it would be kind of on a a it would be up against not an actual a full wall, but uh, like a platform that was that was kind of like a wall, and basically it would spin them around. Like it was a little mini Ferris wheel and it would just go on a path. You have this kid like a baby or a toddler in a car seat and it would go around that thing. It was all these crazy. Th- they had this thing in Lincoln where you um, it had a had an arm and it, uh, it was a it was a video game, not a video game, but you could hand wrestle do an arm wrestling match and you could set it on all these different levels and arm wrestle this thing. And I couldn't believe it. And the and my my uncle would always tell me, he was like, Man, there's a lot of people have broken their arm on that thing. Don't do it. So I would, I would like, wasn't ever get close to that. Not whatsoever. But by far and away, the thing that made me come back and the thing that I was always, if I had any money to spend at those things, was bubble hockey. And it wasn't, and, and by bubble hockey, I mean, it's got the actual players, an actual puck that drops down. It's got a plastic bubble over the entire thing it's got a digital scoreboard it's got crowd noises and most importantly the teams that match up in it are the United States and the Soviet Union and you could go in there into Showbiz Pizza and I didn't know much I don't know if I knew anything about the Miracle on Ice that time the only Miracle Ice I knew about were the ones that I pulled off against the Ruskies at Showbiz Pizza That game was so freaking fun. And I'm going to tell you, I have Googled, I have Ebayed, I have looked for these things before. If and when I become independently wealthy, I will have a circa 1980s bubble hockey machine in my basement. With what, with, and there was no way, and it will have to have the USA CCCP 
guys on each side. And I always want, like, I always felt bad for the person who had to be the Soviet Union when we played because I never would. I was all, always going to be the USA, and I wouldn't even play it if I had to be the Soviet Union in this whole thing. But the crazy story of, of showbiz, which I didn't realize this, I think there might be some kind of a documentary on this or something, but just doing a little reading. So essentially, um, there was this guy named Nolan Bushnell, okay? And he created Pong. Remember Pong, the very original, like the first ever sort of video game of all time? And so, and, and people had, Ataris were big at this time, too, by the way. I had a friend across the street who had an Atari. Um, and so they were getting going with that. And so in 19, the mid-70s, um, they decided, hey, arcades are so big, why don't we make a restaurant that basically not only has an arcade in it, but it has these animatronics that we think we can make. So arcades are already huge and bowling alleys, all of these other places. We need to get the younger kids, like me at that time. I hadn't been to an arcade for the most part in a bowling alley at that point. We need to get kids like me in there. And so 1977, Atari opens Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, and it was, uh, they bought out the place called Pizza Time, so they called Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theater. It was in San Jose. It was a big success. And so they buy the Peach at the Time franchise, and they're going to make all these places. Well, here's the issue. Apparently, one of their big investors at that point started thinking, hey, uh, and the guy's name was Robert Brock. He had a big portfolio of Holiday Inn Hotel uh, franchises, franchisees. And he says, look, I don't think that the Atari people are going to be making animatronics that are up to date here in the the technology's moving faster than they are at that point. And so he had signed on to go with Chuck E Cheese and he backed out. He worried that the Chuck E Cheese's uh dancing animals weren't technologically sound enough for the early 80s. And so he backs out of this whole thing about to look at the do the first location of Chuck E Cheese's. He voids the entire agreement and the entire part and, and starts a new partnership with another company called Creative Engineering that he thinks is going to be make be making better dancing and singing animals. And he opens the showbiz, which is the new one, in nineteen eighty, and his hotel corp op- operates and owns eighty percent of those at that point. And this group CEI, they made the animatronics show, the Rock of Fire Explosion with the Gorilla I was terrified. They owned and operate the rest of it at this point. And so in 1984, then, after this guy, the showbiz guy, backed out of Chuck E. Cheese, Chuck E. Cheese files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Showbiz buys them all up at that point, and they call the new thing Showbiz Pizza Time, which is a combination of what Chuck E. Cheese was at the time and showbiz. And that's why. And I always wondered this as a kid because Chuck E. Cheese was like a character that seemed to be thrown into showbiz. You would have the the rock of fire explosion, but then you would have the Chuck E. Cheese like sort of separate, and I didn't ever understand the matchup. Well, that's why is because Showbiz bought out Chuck E. Cheese, but they wanted to keep that character involved in the entire thing. Um, and then eventually down the road, it became went back to Chuck E. Cheese. Eventually, in about 1986, they started to make changes to the entire thing. Increased lighting, boo. Redesigned food menu, table service, which they didn't have. You had to go out and get your pen, uh, your pizza yourself. Self-serve fountain drinks, distinct toddler areas. Uh, this is when it all became, you know, kind of the 
it felt less of the early 80s very quickly when they started to do that, all these security things. But those early days, that was the wild, wild west at Showbiz Pizza. 1980 to 1985. Um, really, it was probably before I lived in Lincoln. For the most part, it was trips coming up to Lincoln and, and other places that it ended up going there. So I still have a, a – and then I would go later to Chuck E. Cheese like with my kids, and it was such a – just a disappointing experience. Even even that one in Lincoln was such a disappointing experience because of just the sense of awe and fear that I had for showbiz. And just to show you how, how much things have changed, when we bought my very first starter house in 2003 in Lincoln, my wife and I moved into, and they had this old garage, and had, the previous owners had left some crap in there. One of the things they left in there was an ashtray that was a showbiz pizza place ashtray (laughs) i was like man i'm man the old days you could sit and kids watch an animatronic show puff on a heater put it in the ashtray in this dark room order i'm sure order beer with with the entire thing while your kids are playing games that could probably break their arm or toddlers falling out of the the little merry-go-round or the the little ferris wheel type thing that was that was a a very essentially um, late seventies, early eighties feeling at that place, and then it changed. But it was still, it was still so exciting. All right, so there you go. That was another one for me. Uh, what other? One? God, I gotta go. I'm I'm taking a lot of time. Uh, number three, number three for me: malls, malls in Lincoln and Omaha during the heyday. Okay, Lincoln when we moved here had both Gateway. In East Park. They still have both of those, but it's changed so much from where it is now because they seem to be co-equal malls, essentially, in Lincoln in the mid in the late 80s, essentially. And in fact, I would argue I would argue East Park was the was the cooler of the malls if you were going mauling during the mauling era, Uh, because number one, East Park had a movie theater. So that was a big deal there. Both of them, see the thing, Gateway just felt like a big hallway between Sears and Montgomery Wards and I don't even remember what was all there. Brandeis, Dayton, Miller and Payne. It felt like it was just these, and and a lot of the places that are covered indoors now were outdoors at that point. And so it was like, it was like where your parents shopped for the most part. East Park had the movie theater number one. That was a big deal. Tons of movies there. Uh, it had a food court, as did as did Gateway, but attached to the food cart was an arcade. Originally called Sluggos, later called W.C. Franks. And that place for, I'm going to say, circa 19, 1990, maybe. I don't know what year it even actually changed over. I, I didn't find that information. But I remember going in that place, Sluggos. I I probably had been dropped off by my parents with a friend there or something like that. And there were kids smoking in there. There was a lot of stuff in there happening that I wasn't I, – I felt like a, there was loud music in there. Um, <laughs> it was – it was a – it was a it was the end of the arcade era i admit that like the arcade era was probably more over in the the mid 80s like the prime arcade era and so we were probably talking late 80s early 90s on this thing but it still felt pretty debaucherous for a 
teenager who couldn't drive yet or a preteen who couldn't drive yet at that point. And then I remember that point. Then they changed over to WC Franks, and it felt like the there were more there was more lighting in there at that point. It was kind of the same thing that happened to Showbiz. It's like everything was dark. It's, they realized sometime in the mid to late '80s that we can't have every place be completely dark and creepy all the time. Every place, and it made every place a little bit less cool. But they did it, and and then it became the place that I remember playing two things mainly there. Both of them basketball arcade games. One of them everyone remembers because it's called NBA Jam. And it became huge. It became a console game. But the original arcade version of that game in the early 90s was a video game arcade experience that was bigger than anything. The amount of money that you were willing to continue to put in that game and the experience, the full experience of that game was unmet. And yeah, I went through the era of Pac-Man and Donkey Kong uh, and Centipede and Qbert and Joust and Galaga and Space Invaders. All, I went through all of the uh, the arcade games, um, and there were even even some of the the early sports games that they would have. Nothing for me personally. I, nothing ever quite gave me the feeling of playing NBA Jam on arcade. Now the other thing, there was another one though, and you might have to look this one up. There was an arcade game that was out at about the same time as NBA Jam originally called Run and Gun. And it was, again, sort of this crazy, unrealistic, dunk-crazy basketball game that now probably just looks completely stupid. But the level of fun that that game was um, and the amount of bragging rights, the the amount that people would be impressed if you could do well in that game, you would have a crowd gathering around you in that place, was unbelievable. And so I need to find... I, I, I'm sure you can buy NBA Jam. I think I went to Sam's Club and they had a little NBA Jam's Club or a little NBA Jam mini arcade game. Nobody's buying Run and Gun anymore. That's the one that I want to find. They didn't have the NBA license, which is part of the problem. NBA Jam had obviously the NBA license, had all the teams, had all the, most of the players. Some of the players somehow weren't on there, if you recall the original version. Like, wasn't was Jordan not on there? I want to say Jordan wasn't actually on the original. Is that right or am I making that up? Like, you had to be like, Bill Cartwright and Scottie Pippen or John Paxson and Scottie Pippen if you wanted to play with the Bulls. And I don't even remember if the Bulls was the go-to. Like, I remember some weird teams were good. Like, the the Nets with, like, Derek Coleman and Drazen Petrovic were a weird a weird thing to go with. And and um, I'm trying to remember what some of the – like, I want to say maybe, like, the Cavs was, uh, were a good team to be on that thing too. Brad Doherty maybe, Mark Price. Um, but anyway – that that whole thing with them all, and then East Park. The other the, for those who remember East Park, I should back up before you get to the food court, before you get to the theater, before you get to the arcade. First thing you know, you go in the first turn to the right is the record store. The record store, which was originally called, I think I've got my timeline on this right. Which when we moved here was originally called Pickles. It was then called Twisters for a short time, and then it became Homer's. And I think Homer still exists in Omaha. It doesn't exist anymore in Lincoln, but. That was, that was especially as I got a little bit older into the early 90s, that place was a sacred place for me because, number one, you, you, CDs, I think I got my first CD in probably about 90, 91. And so once the, once the CD boom started, it was huge for me. And the other thing is, this was pre-Barnes & Noble, too. And I don't remember them having this at a lot of other places, but they had listening stations, so you could go. They would put they would put out on display a CD 
that you could go listen and you could sample there. And that was incredible because that that wasn't something I had done at that point, like the listen before you buy thing. And the only thing you way you were hearing any of these songs, of course, at that point was on the radio. And she had never heard any of the album tracks on these these albums that you had heard on the radio. So you turn on, right? You, Pearl Jam's just starting to get big. I haven't heard any of the, the album tracks besides Even Flow or Jeremy at that point. Or or pick another pick another album at the time. And so that was crazy too. And so uh, between that, the posters, the Rolling Stone magazine, I'll still remember walking in there the first time I saw that Rolling Stone magazine where they had Janet Jackson uh, without her top on there. Uh, it, you know what I'm talking about if you were around in the era and saw that. Um, that was still a moment in my life. So that was huge. And then you go down further in the mall at a place called Asian Treasures, which Chinese throwing stars that they had there, that was a big Everyone was, I think everyone in Lincoln, there was a generation of people in Lincoln who thought they were going to be able to defend themselves and need to defend themselves with throwing stars very frequently. That was a huge thing. Um, they had the, they eventually had a place called Team Spirit. Team Spirit. And Gateway had a place called Pro Image. And this, the, the team gear stores were as exciting of a place to walk in for me as possible during a certain portion of my life. Early 90s, once again. Because the main thing I did buy there, because I could afford it, was posters. I would go buy, I would go buy posters there um, of the various things. And I still remember, I had, a, I had a weird collection of posters. At one point, I had a Daryl Strawberry playing for the Dodgers poster on my wall. I got into Daryl Str- I decided I liked the Dodgers at one point. I have no idea why. I liked the Dodgers. I bought a Kansas City Chiefs poster, and you can still Google it. Um, where it showed a bunch of the Chiefs player, and it was wildly problematic. Like, they were all dressed up in, like, war paint, uh, Native American gear. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't smart enough at the time to know how problematic that thing, and I hung it in my room for a long time. A long time. Look that picture up. It's out there still. It has Percy Snow on it and Derek Thomas and Neil Smith, uh, Dan Saliamua. I think they're all on that picture as well. But the thing that I really went in there to do was just look up into Mark's. I knew I was ever going to buy it because they had the actual at the top of Team Spirit and at the top of Pro Image and Gateway. They had the authentic jerseys, the authentic baseball jerseys. And keep in mind, this is at a time now where all of the music artists, all of the the rap and hip hop music artists, are making jerseys the most coveted thing that I could ever imagine. Authentic. Baseball jerseys, the mo- so I, it was like the luxury item. I thought someday, someday when I've really made it big, when I'm 50 years old, I'll be able to get an actual authentic baseball jersey. But never any time before that. And uh, but you would look up, and the, they they would have all of the all of the popular ones at the time. White Sox were big at the time. I'm trying to remember. Yankees were probably big. At the time as well, and but they were like 120 bucks at that point. Those original jerseys, uh, and then one day, one day, probably I was a little bit older, maybe like 1994. They had sales at East Park and Gatorade, uh, Gatorade uh, Gateway called Lime Days and Lemon Days. One was Lime Days at one of the stores. The other one was Lemon Days, and they brought out all their merchandise into the halls. They put crazy sales on the whole thing, and I could not believe it, but probably 1994 they had a Colorado Rockies actual jersey no name or number on the back but a Rockies jersey 
Uh, that was an authentic jersey. So it wasn't like the cotton T-shirt material. It was actually the, I don't know what the actual material that they use for the real jerseys are. It feels different. You guys know what I'm talking about. They had a Rockies one, and it was like 80% off. It was like 30 bucks, something like that. And I was like, this is my moment. I'm going to own an authentic baseball jersey. And I kind of liked the Rockies. I was sort of into them. I had gone to one of their first games at Mile High Stadium during their first season when Eric Young played for them. He was on the cover of the program that year. And so I bought that Rockies jersey, and it was one of the most meaningful purchases that I've ever had because it was something that I did not think until I was going to ever see until I was in my middle ages, and why would I be buying jerseys then at that point anyway? But I found that thing. I bought it. I had a job then, so I was making a little bit of money, so that helped making a little bit of money too. And I had it, and I will tell you what, I still have that thing in my closet. It does not currently fit me. I'm hopeful that it still will, trying to lose some weight. If it does, I'm going to bust that Colorado Rockies jersey out again sometime because it, uh, yeah, it's a, it's like that meaningful of a purchase to me. It is like, it, it, it's like when someone makes their first dollar and they put it in a frame in their business and say, hey, yeah, this was a moment that I always worked towards and I finally got to it and this is where I started. That's like how I feel with that Rockies jersey. I feel like that was like some kind of a rival moment for me in life. And it, looking back on it, it's kind of a stupid thing to think right now. But I definitely felt that. Uh, and then the other thing I want to add on besides East Park and Gateway, and I give Omaha some love, Crossroads Mall. Oh, my gosh. That place was like bigger than life for me. We would go on Thanksgiving weekend after after Thanksgiving. We go on Thanksgiving Friday almost all the time, either Thanksgiving or Friday. Sometimes we would stay overnight there in Omaha. I remember going to that Embassy Street Suites on 72nd Street. We would, It was a huge treat. We would go there, stay overnight, and have a shopping trip, like a Christmas shopping trip with my with my family. And the main the main reason was to go to Crossroads. Uh, because Crossroads was like every mall situation Lincoln had, but like the way that malls were portrayed in popular media, Un- unlike what it felt like in Lincoln to some degree. Lincolns were smaller. They didn't have the massive food court. And you would just drive up at that point on Dodge Street to Crossroads Mall. And I, the the building had those like... I don't know what the purpose of the architecture of it was, but it looked like kind of the big top things. I don't even know what to describe or what it is, but if, you're, if you've are if you been there, you know what I'm talking about. They had those big top tent-looking things. And, like, all, that seemed so big and extravagant and just like, oh, my gosh, this is one of the wonders of the world when you see those big top. We're, go, we're about to go into a magical place, a place that's bigger than life when you go in there. And it felt that way. And especially when you would go there that Friday and Saturday after Christmas, the food court was insane. The Gadzook store was completely insane. The, uh, the, the Franklin Covey store when the Franklin Covey personal plant, it was insane. All of it, the massage chairs. I mean, you name it, that, that place. And they had, they had those same stores that I went to in Lincoln, but bigger and cooler jerseys and all of those things. And so I, I just that was I mean, there was a there was a good while there where there was nothing I associated more with like the bigness of Omaha compared to Lincoln and any level of superiority Omaha had to Lincoln 
than the mystique of Crossroads Mall. <laughs> I mean, it sounds really, it sounds dumb now because of what it became, but I, I, I'll tell you, we one of those years I remember the game. We watched Nebraska play Oklahoma um, in nineteen, uh, so it would have been the Friday after Thanksgiving. That's when they played. So right, the nineteen ninety game which was the year that Mickey Joseph got injured. I watched that game at the Embassy Suites, that Embassy Suites on 72nd Street in Omaha. Nebraska ended up getting killed uh, in that game, which we were very not used to at that time. But we were there in 1989 and watched that game. But I remember the next day we were going to Crossroads. And I remember actually like consoling myself. I'm like, I've I've never seen Nebraska kind of get a beat down like this against Oklahoma because, you know, you know, they, they had won the previous year against Oklahoma and things were things seemed to be looking up quite a bit. The previous two years against Oklahoma. Things were looking up in that series. Mickey Joseph lacerated his leg. They lost big. They weren't going to win the Big Eight that year, but at least I had the big tops at crossroads to look forward to. There was always that. Number two. Number two. Woods Park Pool, Lincoln, Nebraska. It's a pool that's still operating, actually. This is one of the places that's really still there, but it was a very specific thing about Woods Park Pool in Lincoln. Uh, When I went to, I mentioned this in the last episode, in the summer of 1986 and uh, 87, I think, both of them, I went to kind of a child development center-type daycare thing. Um, I wasn't, I was 10 or 11 years old, but it was something, you know, so you had something to do when your parents were working. And there would be outings. There would be there would be field trips during the year. Um, you know, you and a lot of times you would go swimming. Probably once a week or once every two weeks, you would go swimming. And we often went out to Woods Pool, and that was part of it. Now, Woods was a huge pool, incredibly busy. Had the you know had the music pumping, had everything there. But they had something that no other pool had. They had the diving platforms. They had what we called the towers. And other pools in Lincoln had the regular. Diving board, uh, what is it, one meter, uh, or the the high dive, which I think is is that three meters, uh, a little bit bigger. But Woods Pool had the big ones. So the five meter, the first tower, 16 feet. The 7.5 meters, 25 feet. And then the ultimate, the third tower, 10 meters, 33 feet tall. And it was an ultimate test of your ballsiness, if you as a kid, as a 10-year-old, as an 11-year-old, were willing to go off that third tower. And there was peer pressure. And there was mocking if you wouldn't do it. And I was so scared. I was so scared. And I, the high dive was scary to me <laughs> to some degree at that point. And I built up during that summer of 1986. I built up. I got it to the point where I went off the high dive. I convinced myself that the first tower was essentially the same height as the high dive, which it was. It was only, what, two meters higher? So what, those high dives are probably 10, 12 feet. Um, and so I did. So I got myself to do that. But the third tower was different. And and if you don't remember or haven't ever been to a place where they had these, they there was a, there was a lifeguard who sat there, and he or she would flash fingers, one finger, two finger, or three, three fingers, and there was a kid waiting on each of the towers to go off. So she'd say, one goes, one goes, one jumps off, swim to the side, wait for a little bit, two goes, two goes off, 
switch to the side. And and then three would go. But three, the rule was, at least as I recall, the rule was for the third tower, you couldn't just jump off. You had to get a running start. And what the the reason they told us this, at least among the kids that were there, was that if there was a strong enough wind coming your direction out of what would have been the east at that time, if there was strong enough wind that you could get pushed back off the east tower and fly back and hit your head on the second tower or the first tower if you did not jump far enough. And so you had to run as fast as you could to jump off of that thing and kind of do like an adventure movie scene while you're jumping off a building onto another building at that point. And that was terrifying to me. I finally got the guts to go off the second tower where there was no running start. And it was not, I mean, I did it, but I, I was not, I, my experience of it was not one that I was like, I'm ready for a new harder challenge after that. Uh, the, basically it was terrifying. I didn't really want to relive it. I survived it. I wanted to move on. Took the entire summer before I even decided I was going to try it. And I finally got up to the third tower because I wanted so badly because I was just getting, I was just getting so much crap. From from all of these, old, mostly older kids, who would go off it, and I wouldn't. And they were also telling me the stories that I th- that I think probably every city that had these had a story about how there was a kid earlier this summer who did a belly flop off the third tower and his stomach split open. And there was there was some version of injuries that kids had had going off of that that became a legend with all of these, and were told every time that we were there. And so I finally said, I can't take this anymore. I've got to do it. I'm so tired of being the one who's being singled out, made fun of all of these things for not going off the third tower. And so I finally said, I'm doing it reluctantly. I didn't want to. I just wanted to say that I didn't get it over with. And you're waiting then. You're wait- You're on the ladder. You're waiting in the line. You're finally up there. You're watching the other kids go. You're thinking about going back down. Like you're like really considering going back down, but realizing that could be even a worse situation. You're trying to make up an excuse for doing that. And then you see the lifeguard flash the three fingers. And I start my run because you had to go on this run to get off of it. And I remember I took a couple of steps and my legs stopped working. It was, it was like I did not. It was an involuntary stop of my legs from running. At that point, I backed up, tried it again. My legs would not run off the edge. I had that much fear built up into me that my brain was involuntarily, at least it seemed this way to me, stopping my legs from going off of that thing. And then I heard it from the people behind me. Okay, this is getting into a new level of embarrassment at this point. The lifeguard's yelling at me. The kids behind me are laughing at me. This is terrible. So I sum it up and I pour in all the adrenaline I could somehow into my legs and I made myself run and jump off and I did it and I went way down in the water and I think my feet might have touched the floor of that 10 or 12 foot pool, whatever that whole thing was, floated back up, got out to the side, I got it done and I said, I don't think I'm ever doing that again and I didn't. I never did it again. I did it once. At that point. And I said, I'm fine with the rest of it. I have checked this box off. It is done now. I went off the third tower. I have accomplished this as a 10-year-old. 
I'm going to retire now from my diving career. But the mystique of those things being there all of the time was it made that whole pool trip into such an event and such a test of your own fortitude that I almost miss it now. I missed that whole part of it. Now, I don't know exactly when those things, they're still there. I think they still exist or they tear them down. This is something I totally should know. I know they're not open anymore. And I know there are stories of them closing them publicly, but still using them for competitions for a while. I know there's also a lot of stories about people using them during after hours as well and jumping off of them. Uh, Like, I don't know. Can you climb up them if you want to now? I'm going to have to have somebody give me some info on this thing. I don't know the answer to that, but. That third tower, if you're ever down there and you see it, that was a moment when I finally overcame all my fears for once. And then I basically said, I don't want to overcome my fears anymore. It wasn't that great. It wasn't that fantastic. And I'm still kind of scared of heights after that. Uh, And then last but not least, number one, and you probably all suspect it was going to end up here for this thing. But my number one, by far, uh, with a bullet, the very most nostalgic place that I've got in my childhood in Lincoln, Nebraska, It sounds weird now. Miniature golf is fine. I like miniature golf. It's fine. My kids want to go. Great. It's fine. We'll have a fun time. It's nothing like the level of excitement I had to go miniature golfing in a place in Lincoln called Coolcrest Garden Golf. Opened in the 1950s. I caught the tail end of Cool End Garden Golf on North 48th Street in Lincoln. Just past O Street. So there's a Target. There, Target Super Saver, now, you know, on 48th and O. So we're talking right across the street to the east. I think there's car parts. It's kind of by the uh, Holiday Skate World that I mentioned in the last episode that we did this. And it was different than your regular mini golf course now in that there were so many motorized sort of hazards, timing games. It was – there was – robotics there was all of this stuff on the course that made a good shot so much more thrilling if you timed it right to give you an idea there was the most memorable one i think most people have is there's an alligator right just an alligator head and it would just open and close and open and close and you had to time it there was another one that was like a life-size dollhouse and it had a garage that would open and close essentially and you had to get it at the right time there was one that was a rocket That launched up and down, and if you would get it up at the top, it would launch up, it would go in the rocket, and it would go out. There was an entire, like, lower grotto level on one of the holes that the ball would go into. And the entire thing was, like, meticulously gardened. Uh, There were flowers everywhere. I don't know if I appreciated this as a kid, but I see pictures now. There were flowers. Like, I'll go to mini golf courses now, and it's just like, yeah, it's not that. They didn't really make it look as pretty as that place did. There was this, it was old enough at the time when I went there in the 80s and 90s that there was this great tree cover. It was shaded all over the place. And everything felt like vintage then, super vintage then, because it had been around since the, the most of the, the pieces on the courses had been around that long. And there were three courses. Uh, the one in the back, I wonder if the back, one in the back was a newer one, because I remember that one didn't ever have nearly as much shade. Um, and the the other thing about this that it's odd that I have this much of a positive memory about the whole thing, and I still can't quite put words into why it was so incredibly exciting to go there, other, other than I was a kid and there was just a real level of care and thought put into making that place a 
a really special experience, I guess. But the owners, and there's tons you can read um, on on the owners of Coolcrest and the family behind Coolcrest, but the ones that were in Lincoln is like they were strict and they did not care for horseplay at that place. I saw with my own eyes multiple kids, multiple people I was with, friends I was with, be go ahead and have their game ended, have their putter taken away because they had raised it above their hips or there was unnecessary horseplay or hitting the ball really hard, you know, like you do sometimes at a golf at a miniature golf course and knocking it off one of the holes. Like they were there patrolling. You know, like you have the golf marshal going around when you're actually golfing at a golf course. They had monitors going around that place and making sure you weren't doing that crap. And so I was also nervous the entire time. Because I was a little bit of a goody two-shoes. I was nervous the entire time that I was going to do something or someone in my group, God forbid, was going to do something that was going to get us in trouble and end our round at the time. And yet you put all of that together. You put all that together, this 1950s style in the 80s and 90s, these difficult holes, some of them were incredibly frustrating, the pressure to to make sure you were behaving the entire time. And I do not have one, and this is notwithstanding what I said at the beginning, where I said, look, I realized if I went back and relived these things, they wouldn't be the same. But if there were one experience, just experience, that I could go back and see and feel and do again, it would be going to that place and doing a round of golf, having the music of the era playing at the time, string lights everywhere, completely lit up. Uh, and then at the very end, like you have many golf courses, many miniature golf courses, they had the free shot up the ramp. And like that moment felt like a lottery type situation. Like you had a chance to change your week, to change your month if you would put that in, and I occasionally did. Now, I know, and and maybe many of you two know too, that this was, I, I didn't know at the time, I didn't know till later, that this was kind of more of a, a franchise situation, and there were multiple of these open. There was one in Kansas City. There was one in St. Joseph. And so now I've been down to one to St. Joseph, Missouri, which has a bunch of the fixtures from Lincoln. Like, it feels very much like the one in Lincoln, and for a while, uh, I think they were going to close it. They were thinking about um, they didn't have ownership for it. I think they've sold it, and someone else runs it now. But there was a time there where it didn't look like they knew what they were going to do with that land, and they had all those fixtures. I tried everything I could to find people with money in Lincoln to get those fixtures, to get those things, as many as they could buy, bring them back and recreate it in Lincoln. And I th- I am pretty sure there were some efforts to do that. It didn't end up happening for whatever reason. Uh, but I believe I just saw their Instagram page. It still exists. So if you want to see what that was like, if A, you were like me and you have memories of it, or B, you never, you never did end up seeing it and you hear people talking about it all the time, go to St. Joseph sometimes. Stop on the way to Kansas City. Try it out. I don't know if it's going to make sense to you. I don't know if you're going to go there and you're going to be like, ah, I get it because you're not a kid and it's not 1986, 1987, but you can at least know what we're talking about and you can still probably, and I know you can play on a bunch of the holes, a bunch of the stuff that were the exact ones that so many of us in Lincoln played on when we were kids. I'm such a nerd. I bought, I found on eBay a postcard a Lincoln postcard from the 60s that had Cool Crest golf cart on it, course on it. 
and I've got it up on my if you ever watch any of my video things that I do, it's right over my shoulder um, by that neon sign. If you look to the left of the neon sign, I have it displayed. It's a cool crest golf course postcard. So anyway, uh, uh, I hope you enjoy that. Uh, just I've got all these things in my head that I think about. I'm like, I should tell tell some of these stories. Maybe some people will get a kick out of them at some point. So I hope you enjoyed them. We're going to get get back going. Uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do next with the Jack Mitchell podcast. I'm going to try and weave in some interviews sometimes. Uh, I think sometimes I'll do some more solo shows. I'm going to try some different concepts as well throughout this whole thing. I'd love to hear what you'd like, what you want to hear, if you've got interview guests that you want to hear. And if you're new to the podcast, man, go back and listen to the the past catalog. I did a weekly show, weekly shows from like April to October, November of last year. And there are a ton of interviews. They're all, uh, for the most part, completely evergreen. And they're kind of about personalities. They're about... Uh, the stories of the people, and I think they're still going to be completely applicable and interesting right now in the same way they were from when we recorded them. So go ahead and check that out. And the other thing is, if you haven't yet delved into Podcast House Media, uh, podcasthousemedia.com, we got a new podcast, uh, lots of new podcasts there, lots of stuff that hopefully something you're going to find that tips your interest. Uh, got a new one coming up, too, that is now, as of yesterday when I'm recording this, that is on Podcast House Media called Volleyball State. It's Jeff Sheldon and Lincoln Arneal. It's one that I've worked in developing with them. Um, and we just, when it comes to podcasts on subjects, we've got a lot of them on a lot of things that people care about. I think it's a good thing I'm excited about podcasts. Somehow, we have very few about the thing that just got 90,000 people into Memorial Stadium. And we've got one now by two people who are beat, who are Jeff, a former beat writer. Uh, for the World Herald. Lincoln, too, formerly from the World Herald, now works for Huskers Illustrated and writes for them. These guys are experts. They're incredibly smart. They do a great job on that. So if you haven't yet, check that out at podcasthousemedia.com. And until next time, thanks so much for joining me on the Jack Mitchell Podcast, and we'll see you around.